This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. What do feral pigs, horseshoe crabs, Staten Island, and opioids have in common? Master essayist Ian Fraser has written about all of them. He's here to talk about his latest book, Hogs Wild, a collection of recent pieces from The New Yorker. I would like people to see that the writing and the, the subject matter are, are classic American stories. What's wrong with American policing and how do we fix it? Two books we review this week look at very different sides of the ongoing debate about how the police should be doing their jobs. Our reviewer, Barry Friedman, will join us to discuss both. I mean, it's not nuts to think that if everything you do becomes the focus of the news, you're going to get cautious about what you're doing. Also, literary news and the books that we and other people are reading. The New York Times wants to hear your thoughts on podcasts, this one and any others you listen to. If you've got a few spare minutes, check out our survey online. Go to nytimes.com slash book review survey. And thank you. Ian Fraser joins us now. His latest collection is called Hogs Wild, Selected Reporting Pieces. Ian, thanks so much for being here. Oh, I'm happy to be here. All right. So what was the genesis of this particular collection? Well, the idea I just had been writing uh, reporting pieces for, you know, for many years, but I just kind of looked and I realized I had a bunch of them and I've decided to just put them together. They They span from like 2000 until... 2015. So uh, it looked like suddenly things started to fit together and make sense as a book, and I I decided to put it out. Is there an organizing theme? No. (laughs) That's that's always nice to hear, because I looked at the table of contents, and I read some of it, and uh, and it looks like there's no organizing theme, and that's kind of refreshing, because you didn't try to shoehorn it into an organizing theme that didn't exist. Well, I tried to do the ones that I thought were best Mm -hmm. and ones that I liked. And I do think that when you read it, you'll see that uh, there are a lot of things that recur and that maybe even reinforce each other or develop through the book. But I didn't, uh, you know, it doesn't really have a theme. The topics are pretty widely varied, you know. Yes. But what are those recurrent themes? I mean, Hogs Wild is about wild hogs and about their resourcefulness and the way they manage to survive and even prosper and spread in all different kinds of situations. And so a lot of the book is about how things keep on living, find a way to keep on living. I have another piece about invasive carp Mm -hmm. uh, in the Mississippi River system. Uh, I have a piece about seals in the New York Harbor, and another piece about uh, horseshoe crabs, also in New York City. And it's not like this is a book about animals at all. I mean, that's just one of the things that recurs in the book. But uh, the book is about how things, what's under what you see. Mm-hmm. You, know? you don't see the wild hogs that much. They're, they tend to be nocturnal. Most people don't know that there are lots and lots and lots of horseshoe crabs uh, spawning on the beach over Memorial Day weekend, but there are a lot of them. I feel like this is turning into some kind of metaphor for the election um, or the electorate, but maybe not. Well, yeah, I guess so. (laughs) Things appear that you don't know are there. Right. And that when they appear, 
sometimes it can be just really revelatory and exciting and like, uh, you know, the creature from the Black Lagoon coming out of the water or something and everybody's horrified. I, I mean, it, but it isn't, I don't think, totally horrifying. It's just exciting to see what's under what you normally see. Where did all these horseshoe crabs come from? Right, yeah. Um, how did you decide to name it Hogs Wild? I mean, other than it being a very fun title. I just love the term Hogs Wild. <laughs> I don't know why. A friend of mine used to answer his phone as if he he had some company that was called Hogs Wild. So he would just pick up his phone and say Hogs Wild. And I just thought that was a cool way to answer the phone. I just liked the way it sounded. The piece about the wild hogs ran in the New Yorker, and it was titled Hogs Wild. Did you give them that title, or did they... I did give them that title. I did. And they kept nobody, it. Nobody really liked it, but I, I sort of, I just thought it was a funny title. And, and the cover is really funny, because it's this hog that they used for the, to illustrate it is quite a hoggy-looking thing. I wanted it to seem a little bit unhinged. And so did you keep the titles that they had when they originally appeared in The New Yorker? Or usually. You... Usually I did. Mm-hmm. Some of them even look kind of weirdly like magazine titles and not like titles of essays. The piece that I did about the hurricane, uh, it's, it's called something like Hurricane Sandy the Toll, mm-hmm. something like that. You know, that was just a title that you would have in a magazine piece, but that wasn't my idea. Did you work, rework any of the pieces from the form in which they existed in the New Yorker? No, no, not really. I mean, if there were duplications, you know, where I would use the same phrase uh, the way a lot of authors will do, uh, I cheated a little bit and came up with something different so the reader wouldn't say, wait a minute, you just said that in the previous article. But I didn't, I didn't do any massive or even minor rewriting, really. So these pieces you mentioned are from um, 2000 to 2015, but you've been writing for The New Yorker since 1974. When That's you look right. back at a collection like this, like does it feel like it's uh, from a very different era? Have things changed in terms of either the kind of things The New Yorker has been interested in or the kind of things you've written for them? Pieces have gotten shorter in general reporting pieces, and that's not just The New Yorker. It's a lot of places. Magazines publish fewer long pieces. So this actually doesn't have that, the the really long piece in it. You know, I don't have one piece that's, I don't think there's one in there over maybe 8,500 words. Things have changed in in a lot of different ways. I think for me, I became more interested in sort of social justice as Mm -hmm. I got older. And uh, I admire people who went from comedy to, to that kind of concern. You know, somebody like Al Franken, not a writer, but somebody who was very funny and then thought, well, I should do something here. Right, instead of just make fun of it. Right, and, I, and so that somehow appealed to me. I mean, the second piece in the book is about a writer's workshop that I started at the Holy Apostles Soup Kitchen on Ninth Avenue in Manhattan. Uh, and it's a fairly long piece. You know, that's about sort of about homelessness. It's about hunger in New York. And uh, I have a long piece about homelessness that came out uh, right at the end of the Bloomberg administration, uh, which had there were there a lot of homeless people then, and there are a lot more homeless people now. Those subjects began to interest me more. Uh, and I felt like I really wanted to use reporting skills to find things out about subjects like that. So that maybe I've gotten more earnest. 
It's intriguing to think about that idea that um, writers often will start out with humor and then move progressively to a, a, a sadder or deeper place, especially when you consider that you're, you're perpetuating this in a way. Your daughter, Cora, is now right. writing for The New Yorker, and she's doing a lot of humor pieces, too. Right. That's really a, a wonderful thing. I mean, Cora has, uh, has written some really funny pieces, and I had the amazing experience. I don't know how many people have had in their lives where I had a humor piece that I had really wanted The New Yorker to publish, and they had held it, and then they put it in the magazine, and it was the issue was closing on Friday, and I got a call from Susan Morrison, my editor, and she said, well, I have good news and bad news. The bad news is your piece has been bumped, and the good news is it was bumped by a piece by your daughter. That's great. <laughs> which was pretty, pretty much fun. What do you call what it is that you do? I mean, in his review of your book, Carlo Rotella, our reviewer, calls it the reported essay. Is that how you think of it? Yeah, that's a good way of describing it. I mean, it's an essay. The form is kind of like if you ever have seen the uh, stage manager's speech in our town at the beginning, mm-hmm. where he's just out kind of talking to the audience, and then he starts giving you exact facts about Grover's Corners or whatever. I forget the name of the town. It was a way I think E.B. White kind of does the same thing in his essays, where you'll get kind of thought and... Uh, uh, a kind of discursive style, but then when you want to get to the fact, you go to the fact. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's more like the fact appears in the voice of the essayist rather than the fact coming first and sort of dictating the voice, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, no, absolutely. More like that you want to have the facts and you want them to be right, but it's just a different way of, of going to that. I, I like to think the reporting is every bit as strong as reporting that occurs in kind of a regular who, what, when, where newspaper style. But yeah, I definitely do that. Is that where you started out? Were you a newspaper reporter before you? Nope. I was a talk of the town writer from my early childhood. You know, I started when I was 23. A lot of what I did was just read the great writers who were writing for it then, you know, just reading the magazine and and reading people. Well, Mitchell wasn't writing, but E.B. White still was writing. Who are your other models? Uh, A.J. Liebling, Lillian Ross, who was definitely very much there when I started and, you know, reading her great profiles, the Hemingway profile. And, of course, John McPhee, who I've known since I was 15, he was very much a model, like reading Coming Into the Country, you know, and just having it change how I thought about things. When I was in high school, In Cold Blood came out. Mm -hmm. And that was another book that, I just sort of memorized. How do you choose your subjects? Totally curiosity and passion. Mm -hmm. The plot of an essay like this is curiosity. You know, gosh, I wonder about this, and then that leads you to wonder about that. A lot of these essays were assigned. Uh, The Hogs Wild essay was uh, an idea of Susan Morrison. My editor, it was a great idea. She just said, you might be interested in this. <laughs> she knew your, knows your interests, I would imagine. Right, yeah. This is wild hogs that are rooting up everybody's yard and causing all kinds of mischief out in the various places all over the country, and wouldn't you be interested? And the uh, invasive carp was uh, David Remnick's idea. You know, they kept kind of saying, you should do these, you should do these, and I'm usually slow to do things that aren't my idea both of those were just right on the kind of thing that I would want to write about. So 
I found curiosity, you know, once I got into the subject. What's your favorite piece in the collection? The piece about Hattie Carroll, the song by Bob Dylan, it's called The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll, and uh, it's about a woman who was uh, yelled at and hit with a cane by a drunk at a uh, party in uh, Baltimore and who died immediately afterwards. And uh, Bob Dylan wrote this song because the guy who uh, abused her and hit her with a cane did not get very much prison time. He got almost none. So I went back to her congregation, to her church, and talked to women who had known her. That conversation where where these uh, women in her church were saying, you know, could we forgive that? And could God forgive that? And I just thought that was really a great moment. It has resonated with me. You know, I now see, you know, all of these killings of uh, uh, black people and situations where there's just horrible injustice. And then the way that that this particular injustice was viewed many years later, you know, and is forgiveness possible and just the way the women were talking about it. I really, I really love that part of the book. Hmm. If you had to, like in your fantasy of a reader coming to this book and reading through it and putting it down, what's the takeaway you want them to come away with? If you could think of sort of the highest compliment they would pay, would it be, you know, that Ian Fraser, he knows how to tell a story or Ian Fraser really gets to the heart of the issue? Or I would like people to see that the writing and the, the subject matter are, are classic American stories. It's a kind of American, I, I hope, straightforward prose that uh, will last. I hope that's what people would, would think when they read it. That would be great. All right. Our listeners, readers, uh, hopefully you will all come away thinking exactly that. Ian, thank you so much. Thank you so much, too. Ian Fraser is the author, most recently, of Hogswild, Selected Reporting Pieces, which is reviewed this week in the book review by Carla Rotella. This is John Williams, an editor at The Times, and I'm here with Alexandra Alter, who has publishing news. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, John. Um, You wrote recently about what the headline calls a literary bromance. Yes, uh, that was quite a cheeky headline. (laughs) I had the pleasure earlier this year of visiting with uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, the poet and former publisher of City Lights. He is 97 years old, and he is still in an incredibly prolific phase. And the bromance that the headline refers to is the long relationship that he's had with his literary agent, Sterling Lord. They're two of the last living links to the Beat generation. They've known each other for, you know, six decades. And they have a new project together. Lawrence Ferlinghetti has recently finished a semi-autobiographical novel, which was to the great delight of Sterling Lord, who has been urging him to write a memoir for the last 20 years. And Lawrence kept saying, no, I'm never going to write a memoir. Because he's mostly written poetry. That's right. He's primarily a poet. He does some painting. He's published one novel. So this is a very different kind of work for him. Um, Sterling Lord, meanwhile, is himself 95 years old. And they're both going very strong. A young guy, comparatively. Yes. He likes to point out their age difference. (laughs) He said to me several times, Lawrence is the only client I have that's older than I am. (laughs) (laughs) One would think. And so this book is done? The book is done. It's on submission. Um, They're doing some more edits. You know, it's a very experimental kind of work. It's funny because Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who published all the beat writers, I mean, he published Ellen Ginsberg and Gary Snyder and Michael McClure and Gregory Corso. He, you know, he Kerouac. Yeah, he did some Kerouac. I mean, On the Road was with Viking and Sterling Lord was 
the agent who represented oh, wow. Kerouac, which is how they in- initially got to know each other. So Lawrence Ferlinghetti has always kind of separated his own work from beat writing. He says it's not as stream mm. of consciousness as a lot of the poets he was associated with as their publisher. But with this book, he's sort of gone in that direction to his own surprise. It's it's a blend of you know autobiography about his childhood and a little bit of surrealism thrown in there. So it's they both think that it's going to take a while for them to find the exact right publisher. Did he give a sense of why he blended those things? Did he just not feel comfortable kind of addressing his life more directly, or he just creatively felt excited by the idea? Of- when I asked him about the biography question, because he has led this incredible life. Yeah. I mean, he's just a legend in, in the publishing world, going back to his association with the Beats. But beyond that, he's you know traveled all over the place. He's a painter. You know, He was really involved in a free speech movement um, in the 50s when he stood by Ellen Ginsberg's howl. You know, he was charged with public obscenity and almost went to jail over that, but they won the case. So he's had a huge impact on um, poetry and American literature and even American culture. But when it came to the question of writing that up, you know, about himself, he said, I don't think that's for me to say. I think biographers should handle my life. Hmm. Um, But he did feel compelled to write about his childhood, which was dramatic in its own way. His father died before he was born and his mother was institutionalized for um, mental illness. And so he lived in an orphanage for a while and lived in Europe for a while with a relative. So he had quite a dramatic childhood. And that is a lot of what he is exploring in the new novel. It's just something that Sterling Lord has been urging him to do for so long. And this has been a bi-coastal bromance mostly, right? Because Ferlinghetti is in San Francisco and Sterling Lord is based here in New York. Exactly. Yeah, they've been bi-coastal and um, they led sort of parallel careers in some ways. Sterling Lord, through his agency, Sterling Lord Literistic, which he founded in 1952, was um, a proponent of beat writers like Jack Kerouac. He Mm -hmm. also represented Ken Kesey. Meanwhile, you know, he was doing that from New York. And on the other coast, you have Lawrence Ferlinghetti with his publishing house. And, you know, in the in the early days, they weren't always as close. I think they've gotten closer mm-hmm. over the years um, because they're two of, of the last living people from that generation. But, you know, they would occasionally spar when, say, Lawrence Ferlinghetti wanted to buy a new novel by Jack Kerouac or, or after his death, he wanted to publish some of his work. And Sterling Lord, you know, was going to bigger houses with deeper pockets. And right. um, Lawrence would complain about that. Or occasionally, Sterling Lord would send Lawrence something that he wanted Lawrence to publish, like, for example, William Burroughs' Naked Lunch. And Lawrence was not a fan of that book, so he had the upper hand. He turned him down. So they had their kind of, you know, they had their moments over the many decades where they didn't quite see eye to eye. But, but it's safe to say that if you're going to know someone for about 60 years, you're going to have to get over some grudges occasionally. Exactly. And, you know, um, they didn't actually work together officially until the 80s when Lawrence Ferlinghetti was publishing his first novel, Love in the Days of Rage, and his normal publisher for his poetry, New Directions, rejected it. Um, It didn't suit them. And so then he needed an agent for the first time. He'd always handled his own affairs. And the the other thing that's sort of funny about their relationship, and I talked to a lot of literary scholars and um, scholars of the Beats who had sort of observed both of them in their role in this in this enormous movement, mm. they couldn't be more different on the surface because you have Lawrence Ferlinghetti as this anarchist bohemian. <laughs> he was a strong Bernie Sanders supporter, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, you have Sterling Lord, who represented Robert McNamara. He's this very sort of proper kind of old-fashioned gentleman, yes. you know, living in New York and kind of wringing enormous sums from publishers in an extremely diplomatic way. Your so. piece reminded me of the fact that um, you know, 
know, several years ago, when back in my publishing days, I had lunch one day with Sterling Lord and an editor named Cass Canfield, who was at HarperCollins at the time, and a writer named William Polk, who writes about history. And I think all of them were in their late 80s. Wow. And I was probably 35 or 36 at the time. And we went to one of these august clubs in midtown Manhattan. And your piece reminded me of this generation of people and how they just have so many stories. And I'm glad that Ferlinghetti is getting some of them down before it's too late. I feel the same way. And Sterling Lord actually published his own memoir recently uh, in 2013. The title is Lord of Publishing, and he um, goes into a lot of his history with the Beats. I think both of them, one of the reasons they both acknowledge that they're still going so strong is that they didn't really participate in some of the the craziness of the Beat era. And so they ended up kind of being babysitters to some of these writers. Yes, you have that great line in your piece where you say something like, Ferlinghetti experimented with LSD but didn't go too crazy. Yes, <laughs> yes. They, I think they both kind of um, held themselves back. Or they were very you know, ambitious and, and driven, and they felt like they needed to focus. Well, it's funny um, that people associate with the Beats in the end are kind of exemplars of clean living. It's and right. What it can get you. Exactly. Thanks, Alexandra. Thanks for having me. We are still eager to hear from our listeners about your summer reading experiences, those memorable books that left an impact on you during the sunny months. Please send us voice memos to podcasts at nytimes.com. We'd like them to be about 30 seconds long. We'd like to know your name, where you were when you read the book, and of course, what the book was, and why it left such an impression on you. If you do not know how to do a voice memo, we have an article outlining all the steps for you at nytimes.com books. Thank you to everyone who's already sent them, and we look forward to hearing from more of you. Barry Friedman joins us now. He is a professor of law and politics uh, at NYU School of Law. And this week he reviews two books about contemporary policing. Barry, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure, Pamela. So the two books, I'm going to quickly give the titles. One is The War on Cops, How the New Attack on Law and Order Makes Everyone Less Safe by Heather McDonald, and then Handcuffed. What Holds Policing Back and the Keys to Reform by Malcolm Sparrow. These two books, I think, by title and subtitle alone, sound quite different from each other. Can you give a just a brief what these two takes are on policing? Sure. They both start with the events that occurred in Ferguson, Missouri, and maybe we can talk a bit more about that. And I actually should say they take as a real jumping off point this idea of a Ferguson effect, the notion that uh, because the police are being scrutinized with phone, cell phone, video cameras, that they may be stepping back from doing their jobs. And Heather McDonald's is a is a riposte against that, saying that we need to let the cops do their jobs and take the handcuffs off. And then ironically, uh, Sparrow's book called Handcuffed is about how the police need to commit further to working well in their communities. So one's a book about the police working closely with their communities, and the other is, you know, we need more, let's let the cops do what the cops need to do. Sparrow is a former cop, albeit a, a detective chief inspector, I think he was, uh, in the UK. He has a really interesting resume. What's his background? Well, he, I mean, he was a cop in the UK, and then he came to the United States, and he eventually found himself on the faculty at the Kennedy School at, at Harvard, and has been deeply involved with what they call an executive session there, where they gather experts in a field and they sit and they talk through things. And he's been central to the executive sessions on policing that have been held over the last few years. And interestingly, I think that partly the events of the last year or two in the United States around policing 
you know, called into question everything that had been happening in the executive sessions. One was kind of idealized and theoretical, the executive sessions, and then there was the messy reality on the street. And that's kind of Sparrow's entry point into all this. I also want to mention, um, as part of his biography, that he's a trained mathematician um, yeah. And, yeah. and an inventor of a fingerprint identification system. So um, quite an interesting uh, background. And if you could sort of characterize the, the politics of each book, broadly speaking. Yeah, I will. But I want to just step into that cautiously because, you know, I think these books, which come at the same problem from two completely different each author entirely confident that they are right in reaching completely opposite conclusions, so it's somewhat remarkable, it just indicates for me the broken nature of discussion about policing in the United States, that we feel like we have to yell at each other across a political divide when, in fact, the truth undoubtedly lies somewhere in the middle. So mm -hmm. I hate using the traditional kind of left-right distinctions because I don't think they work in this area, and it's better just to, you know stick to, I think, what they think, which is that McDonald really is an advocate of, she's an advocate of Ray Kelly and stop and frisk in New York and aggressive policing. And so what we might consider the right, except that I don't think that the right is necessarily there today. I don't even think many police are there today. And Sparrow, on the other hand, comes maybe from what you would call the left in the sense of the community, the police need to engage more with their community and do problem solving with community members but I think, you know, a lot of police chiefs think that's the right way to go today. Let's start with um, uh, the Ferguson effect um, and what that means and, and is that real? You know, one group of people says Ferguson happened. Everybody started to capture all these police activities on their phones. Cops have gotten concerned about doing their jobs. You know, I saw a, a photograph from a police you know, workroom where it said, as they very typically will, you know, come back safely. And then below that was, and don't end up on YouTube. Uh, and so the idea is cops are standing down from their jobs because they are uh, worried that when they do their job, they're going to get caught on video and there's going to be criticism. Mm -hmm. And the other side of that argument says, look, there's no clear proof of that. Uh, we've looked at the statistical evidence and it isn't evidence at all. But Heather McDonald is sure that it exists. And she's very forceful in saying that's what's gone wrong with policing. The police have stopped policing, essentially. That yes. They're too scared of getting caught doing something wrong, that they've stopped stop and frisk, and that therefore sort of street crime is on the rise. And particularly homicides in a few cities. Is there any truth to that? Again, I try to really play these things down the middle. I, 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 I'm the director of something at NYU called the Policing Project, and we've really tried very hard to bring both sides together. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an answer that, that walks that middle line, which is the intuition isn't crazy. I mean, it's not nuts to think that, that if you're getting, you know, if everything you do becomes the focus of the news, you're going to get cautious about what you're doing. And so Jim Comey, who's the director of the FBI and who, you know, is a deeply respectable individual, feels that there is a Ferguson effect. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, the Fraternal Order of Police have denied that there's a Ferguson effect saying, look, we're out there doing our jobs. It's our job to do and we're going to do it. We don't care if you have video cameras or what. We're going to do our job. And then there have been a lot of folks that have tried to look at it statistically. But the truth is that the data just isn't there and might never be there, but certainly won't quite be there yet. Why is the data so bad? Now, this is a very, very, very serious problem in policing, which is that the state of data collection around policing is shameful. You know, one side of this story will tell you it's because the police don't want you to know the data on what's going on. And there's some truth to that. Nobody wants to release data about their job performance that may be critical or may not cast them in the best light. 
But then the other side of the story is it's expensive and complicated to collect data. And the, in the United States, policing is an inherently local activity. We have, we think, we don't even know the answer to this question, around 18,000 police departments. They all do things their own ways. And so if you want to collect data, you really need a unified way to do that. And I've, I've long believed that the tech companies ought to step in here with the government and try to just help everybody along because I think a little technology can make it go better. The truth is we're often operating in the dark when it comes to policing. Isn't there also a kind of human effect? Because as I understand it, in some cities, there are incentives for police to show that there are fewer crimes going on. And so they might then be reluctant to file the statistics that, that demonstrate to file reports or create reports in order to show lower rates of crime. Right. This is a point that Sparrow makes, which is he says, when you make your target in policing crime rates, then you create perverse incentives because police to be doing well, crime needs to be coming down. Well, crime might be coming down, but the other way that you can make crime come down is you cannot report crime. Right. And so that's a problem with statistics across the board. Yes, there's always a concern about whether the incentives are properly aligned to get the data that you need. I would also think that if you create an incentive that you get more resources based on increasing amounts of crime, that that might influence things another way. Yes. You know, one thing Sparrow thinks, which I think, again, he's at the cutting edge here, is what we need to do is create incentives for officers to do the kinds of tasks that we want them to perform, to engage with the communities, to interact with people, mm-hmm. to have, have, have good relationships. But those are really hard things to count. What Sparrow talks about um, is this term community policing, um, which is one of those terms that's uh, sort of thrown around a lot. And I don't think people know what that actually means in practice. Yes, it often exists more in the eye of the beholder. You know, you can imagine it to be many things, but I, I tend to put community policing into some categories. So one form of community policing is the idea that instead of having cops race all over the city in their patrol cars responding to radio calls, to 911 calls, they're assigned to a particular geographic area better than that. They're on their feet and they're getting to know the community in which they work. That's one form of community policing. Isn't that what we have in New York City with precincts? You know, yes and no is the answer to that. I mean, there's long been lip service to to community policing for decades now. That's the irony. That's the thing that hit Sparrow in the face after uh, Ferguson was that what he thought was going on wasn't. But there is a, a renewed call for community policing in New York City Commissioner Bratton has really led the way to trying very hard to localize policing in particular precincts. Heather McDonald uh, focuses on another reform or policy, um, zero tolerance policing. That sounds very different from community policing. What do we actually mean by that? Zero tolerance policing, which sometimes is called broken windows policing or order maintenance policing, is the idea that anytime you see an offense, you crack down on it. Because once there's this disorder in a place, then it just breeds more disorder. People come to think that it's a disorderly place, and they're going to then pursue disorder in that place. So whether it's turnstile jumping or squeegee people or somebody having some marijuana on the street, that you just throw the law at those offenses. And she's a big advocate of that. And Sparrow, on the other hand, says there's absolutely no evidence that that kind of policing drives down crime rates. And what does Barry Friedman say? Uh, (laughs) So you want me to arbitrate where nobody thinks there's any data? Sure, no problem. (laughs) I think that there's reason to be very worried about an aggressive order maintenance policing. I mean, Bratton's an interesting figure in all this because, as, as Heather McDonald says, he's the great innovator. And he was a fan of that kind of order maintenance policing when he ran the transit police in New York. And 
I don't think anybody's in favor of disorder policing, you know, that we should just let disorder flourish. But he's come around to this idea that police need to be engaged with their communities and that if what you're doing is enforcing every single violation, people are not going to have warm relationships with the policing communities. And so it's it's a tricky business. I mean, I hope you can see that where mm-hmm. you have to sort of train officers to exercise discretion in the right places. But I think that's what's needed. If you had to isolate one real interesting insight, one nugget from each of these books, respectively, what would it be from uh, Sparrow? Sparrow's worried that in the world in which we live today, everything needs to be proved by a random controlled experiment. And he says life is messier than that. And we just need to learn about policing as we go, try things. And I think there's a lot to be said for that spirit of innovation. Uh, Heather McDonald. Her book is going to be a lot of attractive to a lot of people who think that complaints about race and policing are all out of order and, and we should just get tough and we should get tough on the people committing crimes. But I really do think that if you read sort of between the lines in her book, she concedes that there are places where policing has gone very wrong. You know, I wish that people reading her book and that she would see that that's what's driving a lot of the discontent about policing today. And she's a critic of the Eric Garner, the way that was handled, and calls it a heartbreaking tragedy. Her whole shtick is, look, policing is not racist. It's just that racial minorities are committing the crimes, and that's where policing is going. And there, there are a lot of problems with that argument. But again, they're best seen from her book, which admits that, you know, the shooting of Walter Scott in North Carolina was not okay, that what happened to Eric Garner was not okay. And I think what we need to do is be able to say, Yes, we want tough policing that's going to keep us safe. Who doesn't want to be safe? But we have to do that understanding that when it's overly aggressive in communities, you're going to alienate communities, and there'll be a loss of trust and legitimacy for the police. And that's tragic in its own way. Um, You have a book coming out. When is that coming out? February. February, called Unwarranted Policing Without Permission. What's that book about? The idea is that we've made a mistake by not treating policing like the rest of government. In the rest of government, we kind of all know how it goes because we take it for granted. There are rules. They're written down in advance before officials act. We all know what the rules are. They're transparent, and we use some sort of cost-benefit analysis to make sure the rules make sense. We don't do that in policing. A lot of the rules of policing are secret. They're kept from people. People don't get asked what they think about them. They don't weigh in. And then when things go wrong, we try to fix it all on the back end with inspectors general and civilian review boards and uh, now body cameras. And my book is an argument that we could fix a lot in policing. And I I tell lots of stories to show how this is true if we involve people on the front end and trying to figure out what we think policing should look like. All right. Well, we'll look forward to your book, Unwarranted Policing Without Permission. And in the meantime, we have uh, these two books that you review this week, The War on Cops, How the New Attack on Law and Order Makes Everyone Less Safe by Heather McDonald. McDonald, and then Handcuffed, What Holds Policing Back and the Keys to Reform by Malcolm Sparrow. Barry, thank you so much. My pleasure. This is John Williams, happily sitting in on this roundtable segment of the podcast this week for Pamela Paul with my colleagues Greg Coles and Parl Sagal. Hi, guys. Hi, John. Hey, John. We're going to talk about what people are reading. Greg, um, what's new on the bestseller list this week? Not a whole lot. There's only a couple new titles on the hardcover fiction list. Uh, Janet Ivanovich and Lee Goldberg continue this um, Fox and O'Hare series they've been doing with a book called The Pursuit. That's new at number eight. And then down at number 15, Anne Tyler takes her turn in this Hogarth Shakespeare series mm-hmm. uh, that, that the publishing company Hogarth has been doing, where they go to um, prominent writers and ask them to rewrite or update a Shakespeare play. 
uh, the play that Ann Tyler took on is The Taming of the Shrew, a play that she hates, by the way. And in fact, she she has said that she hates all of Shakespeare, but especially The That's Taming bold. of the Shrew. That's really... Wait, she has? <laughs> yeah, yeah, she, well, she, she told that to Ron Charles in the Washington Post. She said, you know, he, he stole his plot. So all he had going for him was beautiful language. She said, so I'm going to steal one of his Paltry, stolen plots, language. and I don't have beautiful language going <laughs> wow. for me. She rewrote The Taming of the Shrew as a novel called Vinegar Girl, set in modern-day Baltimore. Of course. And that's uh, new at number 15. Um, then in nonfiction, the only new title in nonfiction is by the um, historian Nancy Eisenberg from Louisiana State University. She previously wrote a biography of Aaron Burr. This book is something completely different. It's called White Trash, and it goes all the way back to colonial times, looking at the history um, and the treatment, the the kind of the cultural role mm. of the white underclass, yeah. the underprivileged white people, and um, gets a little bit into the racial dynamic, how um, the white elite has tried to group the white underclass with minorities. Um, it gets into kind of the, the history of the disparaging terms, the rednecks or bubba's or, you know, all, all things like that. She looks at indentured servitude. Um, so it's it's this kind of comprehensive look at this one class through our history that has suddenly become very topical, of course, because of the election campaign and the role of the white working class driving Donald Trump's campaign. Globally, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it seemed like there's been a lot of interest online and in, in the not one but two interesting reviews it got in the yeah. Times. Um, I wonder if her Aaron Burr bio has gotten any backlist love due to the uh, Hamilton musical. That's a great question. I, I don't know. But now to the part that I'm always very jealous of Pamela for, <laughs> where we get to talk about what we're reading this week. Who wants to start us off? Parl does. Uh, sure. I've been uh, I have been reading terrible Brexit think pieces. Uh, pretty much that. Between that and Orange is the New Black, not a lot of book reading going on. But um, yesterday I picked up this book uh, by the Swiss eccentric Robert Walser, mm-hmm. uh, and it's called Looking at Pictures. It's, I don't even know where to begin with this. It is, <laughs> so, is it about photography? Yeah, maybe. Like, <laughs> they each take like a page or two long. I mean, it's a you beautiful. Know, he's famous for writing very, yeah, very short pieces. Totally. And yeah. he's, he's a miniaturist. And it's, it's a beautiful book. It's put up by New Directions. And so it's basically you're walking with him kind of in a museum. Like you're just, and there's the, these sort of like little reproductions of paintings. And he sort of like, you know, he does some criticism, but he also kind of falls in love with a woman in a painting and just writes about her. <laughs> he tries to imagine Cezanne talking to his apples and it's just so good and it's sort of like, um, it just you come away from this book sort of just better at looking. Mm-hmm. You know, Art. and like, this has been a week I've been thinking a lot about looking, you know, Bill Cunningham died, you know, and it's sort of that idea of like how, how to train your attention, what do you notice, what do you see, how closely do you look at stuff and because it's so short and it's I'm making it sound fussy but it's really not it's really sort of very irreverent and silly and he's the master of straying so he'll start a sentence and then he'll end up on the other side of the mountain completely on something completely different and it's sort of very light buoyant prose but you do feel sharpened somehow mm. I think and then you can return to the Brexit things pieces <laughs> fully refreshed and does the Valser shade into fiction ever? Because Constantly. It shades yeah. into everything. It yeah. shades into <laughs> any kind of flight of fancy. So highly recommend it. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful introduction to him. You have something equally eccentric, Greg? 
Uh, it is a little bit eccentric. I, I've returned to a book that I read last summer. It's called Paddling North by a woman named Audrey Sutherland. You guys know, and, and most of my friends know, I am a fairly enthusiastic recreational kayaker. So most weekends in season, if the weather permits, um, I will be out on Long Island Sound. Um, I, I live in Connecticut in a shore town. And um, I'll be poking my kayak around various islands or inlets uh, there. For years now, I've looked across Long Island Sound at Long Island and thought, someday I'm going to make that trip. And last weekend, I finally did. I, I That's what my ancestors <laughs> said. I, <think>. <laughs> I <laughs> kayaked from Connecticut to Long Island and back again. Wow. And I was feeling very proud How of myself. How long does that take? Two hours one way. It's it's about an eight mile. I'm exhausted already. It's, it's about I, eight I, miles no. one way. I've um, given up. So it's a 16 mile round trip. Um, I was on the water for about four hours, just under four oh, hours. Oh yeah. Um, and and where I landed was a state park in Long Island, and so I spent an hour kind of poking around there, um, checking it out. There's cliffs. It's it's this great kind of glacial landscape. <laughs> None of which has anything to do with reading. But last summer I read this book, um, Paddling North by Audrey Sutherland. Um, it is sort of an eccentric uh, travel memoir, adventure book by a woman. She was in her 80s when she wrote it. And starting 20 years earlier when she was 60, she had taken her inflatable kayak. And each summer she would do this 600-mile kayak trip in the southeast of Alaska from uh, Ketchikan, Alaska up to Skagway past Sitka and um, in all these little inlets and, and straits. And um, for part of it, she would cut across the land. I mean, she did this into her 80s in Alaska as, as kind of her summer adventure. Um, she would just go up and, and plot her course and sleep in U.S. Forest Service cabins along the way. She would mail herself supplies that she would pick up. Is this at, the only book she wrote? Was she a writer or was this just because of this She activity. was a teacher by trade. Um, she did write another book also about paddling. It was published by um, Patagonia Books. Mm -hmm. So Patagonia, the outdoor outfitters, um, has this publishing outfit, and they published this book. You know, I, I haven't read her other book. I think this is the mm -hmm. one that got more attention because it was sold through um, Patagonia stores. But um, I was reading it partly to humble myself after my trip. <laughs> you know, I, woman here, here I was feeling so proud and this this 80-year-old woman was going 600 miles. Yeah. Eight miles, Greg. Great <laughs> job. It's partly inspirational and uh, partly to um, tamp my ego down. My, my last yeah. and important question is, will, will this appeal to non-kayakers? I don't know if it will. Really. Yeah, I mean, campers, kayakers, right. outdoor, outdoor yes. Right. Um, so not me, basically. In a way, this book is wild without the whole therapy say, yeah. Um, yeah. element. Element to it. I'm going to read this in lieu of going outside. What do you think? Yeah, it's as if you went outside. Yeah. yeah. What are you reading? Um, I recently read um, C.E. Morgan's big new novel, The Sport yeah. of Kings, about horse racing and Kentucky history and racial history in the U.S. It's an incredibly ambitious yeah. and mostly very, very impressive book um, that I would highly recommend. And then I read something. Uh, shorter but equally intense, which is uh, Vivian Gornick's collection of essays, The End oh, of the Novel favorite. of Love, which I thought when I had first known about it was maybe more of a coherent argument, like a book-length argument about something. But it actually is just uh, a collection of essays about different writers, Jane Reese and Kate Chopin. And it ends with the title essay, which was really amazing mm. and both kind of intellectually bracing and also depressing just about how That's love... Vivian Gornick. <laughs> yeah. How love essentially 
can no longer function as a useful metaphor for all of these grand themes that literature you know wants to hang itself on and mm. she makes a really good case in very elegant language mm. i found it uh one of the best things i've read this year yeah, so far yeah it's it's interesting she doesn't mention this in the piece but many years ago i mean before this was written elizabeth hardwick wrote a great essay called seduction and betrayal mm. where she oh, talks yeah. about how seduction can no longer be a plot device because innocence isn't valued right, right? so huh. you can't have yes. a novel that hinges on this young heroine's purity if we don't really care about purity <laughs> and there's something I, I don't know. I always feel like she has Hardwick in mind a little bit when she is sort of making her argument. The, the, the only downside of this is that I think this might have been the only thing left of Vivian Gornick's that I hadn't read. So now I feel like... Oh, you're now oh, bereft. No. Yeah, now yeah. I'm bereft. Anyway. But that's appropriate given the theme. <laughs> On that note. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks, John. John. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.